0: We'll be reading a number of verses beginning at Ephesians 4:17, reading through verse 24, Ephesians 4:17 through 24, and then 5, 1 to 17. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ." If so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And then moving to Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savour. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Seeing then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Thank you, and you may be seated.
1: Well, it's a pleasure for my wife and I to uh, be here with you. And I trust that our being together (coughs) would be um, an encouragement and heartwarming for Naomi and I, as well as for you all. And that we could be uplifted, edified, and and uh, encouraged in our spirits, encouraged to walk with the Lord and to be faithful to Him. So I've been asked to speak about uh, the development and practice of some selected Anabaptist Mennonite applications here during this time of Bible school, and this morning's talk is more of a, as an overview, an overall a sort of a thing having to do with nonconformity and Anabaptist uh, Mennonite history. The nature of the subjects before us deal more with application than what they do with biblical principles that they flow out of. And I intend to look at uh, some biblical principles along and along as as we're going through, in particular as we deal with some of the specific applications. I think you'll probably receive the program of what some of these topics, of what the topics are. But I also uh, will draw heavily on history. It's the nature of these talks to draw heavily on history. Uh, I'm not a a know-it-all in history. I do enjoy reading history. I'm more of an armchair historian than what I am, uh, you know, anyway, a professional historian. But we're going to draw on some history as as we answer the question, what has led us to some of these particular practices? So, you know, we're looking at uh, later on the plain coat, cape dress, head covering styles, and, and that uh, those things. And how did we get here? What led us there? Now, we all enjoy history, if it's in story form. And, of course, the Bible itself is in many ways is a divine history book, and it contains many stories. And I don't really consider myself a good storyteller. However, I hope for the most part that you'll enjoy uh, it'll be more than just having to bear with, but you actually enjoy uh, dipping into some some history. So this message this morning is a little more of an overview, and then this evening we'll get into some of the more particulars of uh, specific applications. The oldest known account of, uh, written account of the first adult baptisms of the 1500s of the Anabaptist uh, movement is found in the Chronicle of the Hutterian Brethren. Now, it was written some years after the fact. I don't know how many years after it actually, this baptism uh, had happened. But in explaining uh, that, the person who wrote this chronicle, the chronicler wrote that uh, after he explained how that after prayer, uh, George Blaurock uh, stood up and he asked Conrad Grebel in the name of God to baptize him with true Christian baptism uh, on his faith and the recognition of the truth, and telling how that, how then after George was baptized, then George baptized the others in the world, and so a couple years, the Swiss Anabaptist threat, disintegration, and so a number of men met together uh, at or near a place called Schleitheim, and there they addressed seven hot-button issues uh, that served to bring them together, and around this, then they could. Uh, Move forward. And one of those dealt with separation. Uh, They had seven articles and one dealt with separation and it begins by saying, we have been united concerning the separation that shall take place from the evil and the wickedness which the devil has planted in the world simply in this, that we have no fellowship with them and do not run with them in the confusion of their abominations. And then the brethren uh, go on to make some specific applications uh, out of that statement and In their context, uh, what they're talking about, the applications have to do relating to both the Catholic and the Reformation uh, churches at that time and associated practices. And things they say, uh, and I quote, which the world regards highly and yet which are carnal or flatly counter to, to the command of God after the pattern of all the iniquity which is in the world and from this we shall be separated and have no part. Separation and nonconformity is the biblical and the rational and the logical consequence of the fact that there are two spiritual kingdoms in the world, two and only two, and everybody is in one or the other. There's no falling between the cracks uh, between these two. And these two spiritual kingdoms are absolutely incompatible and utterly in opposition to, to one another. We'd go to Colossians chapter one, and we see that in verses twelve and thirteen, where it says, where Paul is is going along in one of his long sentences, and he says there in verse twelve, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. You see the contrast right there between light and darkness. Who have delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. And so we have the kingdom of the Son of God. And we have the kingdom of Satan, which uh, is the world. During Reformation times, when Anabaptism was born, there was confusion about these two kingdoms. Uh, both During that time, uh, both people who were saved and people who were not saved were forced together just by virtue of where they lived uh, to be a part of the church. And the church was also yoked together with the state. Now, that doesn't mean that the church and the state were always uh, pulling together, uh, sometimes the state uh, you tried to to have the dominance, and sometimes the church had to tried to have dominance. Well, maybe they tried all the time like that, and so there's some jockeying backwards and forwards between them. But it was seen as uh, that there was a, a yoking together of that, and Anabaptists came to understand what it says here in First Peter, chapter two, verse nine. So, chapter Peter. 2 verse 9 says this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, which means a people belonging to God. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and they understood that they needed to come out and be separate from that church and to, to form churches based on this principle, and the principle of belief and to live and to think very differently uh, from those who are um, a part of the kingdom of the world. Churches that are based on the new births rather than on physical birth. Now, conversion changes people. It transforms them. And as God's children, our beliefs and our values and our morals and our attitudes and our behavior Uh, changes. Rather than being led captivity, captive to do the devil's will, as it talks about in 2 Peter or 2 Timothy 2, we will to do, to will God's will. We will to do God's will, as it says in John 7, 17. And so the scripture that Brother Norman read in the opening this morning, it it talks about that, how that uh, there in Ephesians 4, how that uh, our vain minds, but... But in Christ, our minds have been changed, and we uh, have been made with a, with a new nature of true righteousness and holiness. We are changed. We are we are different now. And let me turn there. But two times in that in those uh, in chapter five, it talks about doing God's will. One is in verse ten, where it talks about proving what is acceptable. Unto the Lord. Then also in verse seventeen, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and so as as believers, as people who have been uh, converted, as people who have had a change of mind, uh, we we think very differently from other people. We have received the rule of Christ. And when when we talk about the kingdom of God, it is really talking about the reign of Christ, the reign of God, and. Is God reigning in our hearts? Uh, And and that's what the kingdom of God is. Is Christ reigning in our hearts? There is a sense in which Christ is sovereign over all the world, but His reigning is not complete until everything is brought into into His dominion. At this time, He allows us the privilege or or He allows us the option of submitting to His reign or not submitting to His reign. But when we submit to His reign, when we enter the kingdom of God... Uh, then it, it changes us, it transforms us. Now, in 2 Timothy two nineteen, it says, The Lord knows those that are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And depart from iniquity, I have in my notes, is half of what separation and nonconformity is about. Separation and nonconformity is not an end in itself. It's not that we're just seeing how how different we can be! How nonconformed we can be! Uh, it's not an arbitrary attempt in order to be different from other people, rather that as, as Romans 12:2 positions it, nonconformity is a companion to transformation, and I say that transformation is the other half. But I think I probably have the percentages wrong, and I jotted that down. It's it's more like that. I mean, transformation is the goal the goal really is not nonconformity. The goal is to be like Christ, for Christ to be uh, made, formed within us, to be made into the image of God and to the degree that, that uh, the practices of our culture or our society and our own desires and carnal wills are different than that. We need to be non-conformed to that because the goal is transformation. And so, you know, it's like, Nonconformity is twenty-five percent, or and transformation is three quarters. I don't know what the balance is, but you understand what I'm saying. The goal is not nonconformity; that's a companion to to what is necessary to be transformed, to be a, a, a child of God, to be for Christ's will to be exhibited in our lives. So, transformation involves renewing our minds, as it talks about there in, in, um, in Romans 12. Uh, so that our thinking aligns with God's thinking. Our values align with God's values. Our morals align with God's morals. And we start to get a grip on uh, how we're to live in very practical, everyday life uh, sort of way and sort of things. Now, there's abundant evidence that the early Anabaptists, right from the get-go, understood and practiced the concept of taking their cues from uh, Scripture in their Christian living rather than just simply following in all the conventions of, of, the, of the culture in which they lived. In the very first year of Swiss Anabaptism, in 1525, there was a, a uh, non-Anabaptist, Reformer by the name of John, Johnny Kessler. And he described the Anabaptists by saying, remember this, is the first year, in their first year, they shun costly clothing, despise expensive food and drink, clothe themselves with coarse cloth, cover their heads with broad felt hats. Their entire manner of life is completely humble. Now, in the short time of this message this morning, uh, I can't begin to give a full picture of how separation and nonconformity played out in 500 years, almost 500 years of, of Anabaptist Mennonite history, and with all its many branches on top of that. So what I want to do is kind of take a few short snapshots, snap, snapshots. Uh, I think snapshots really is of a different era before we got into digital photography. But anyway, we'll take a few pictures. Uh, look at a few pictures of different areas of nonconformity and uh, over the centuries of our attempts and some of our failures uh, in practicing separation and nonconformity. Then I want to conclude the message with several uh, points of application on how to go about the practice of nonconformity. But before doing that, I'd like to just put in a word of explanation here. Uh, The more recent historical... Examples I give are from my history, not from yours. Now, although my wife is a descendant of the first time I understand, it. it's men. and I me over and here I was all within. Anyway, that's that's what's up. So let's let's look uh, first of these different scenarios. We'll talk a little bit about nonconformity and personal appearance. Now that's a biggie, and that's one that we often think about when we think about nonconformity. But it's a mistake to narrow nonconformity down just to our personal appearance. Uh, Resisting being squeezed into the world's mold. That's what the Phillips translation, which is a paraphrase, says about uh, Romans, the first part of Romans, don't be squeezed into the world's mold. You know what it's like to mold butter or mold other things. And, and you come out. And so that's what the world wants to do. That's what Satan wants to do, is to squeeze us into a certain mold, and we're to resist that. We're to be molded like Christ, to, to reflect the image of Christ. And so it's a mistake to narrow nonconformity down to just uh, the way we look, the way we dress, the way we comb, and, and that sort of thing. However, how we do present ourselves to others remains an important part of, uh, of our life as Christian believers. It's important because it matters to God. He talks to us about it in His Word. Now, in Mr. Kessler's observation that I read a little bit ago about the early Anabaptists, the way they attired themselves, presented themselves, reflected their Humility. And so the way they dressed was not really a religious costume as such. It's not that they said, well, now this is the garb that we're going to wear because this identifies us as Anabaptists. Rather, it reflected their humility. They were just simply trying to live simply or plainly. And it said something about their inner characters uh, as believers and followers uh, of the Lord Jesus. They were humble. Now, our attire has always been and always will be a pressure point between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the world. And why? Well, because our personal appearance is a vehicle for so much meaning. Uh, How we present ourselves is so well-suited for expressing our beliefs and our values. Uh, It reflects something about um, which kingdom we're identifying with, and so um, th- this matter of personal appearance and-, and pastors know this. It's just like a perennial weed uh, every year. I mean, it's it's something that comes up in your gardens or in your corn or whatever. It- it's just like that. That it's a it's a pressure point because it is so meaningful in in expressing who we are, our own values and which kingdom it reveals oftentimes which kingdom we're a part of without us really having to say that. One of the charges against people who take application of biblical principles about personal appearance seriously is that we are legalistic. Do you know how old that charge is? Well, Mena Simons addressed it back in the 1500s. So it's an, old, it's an old charge. And so he, in something he wrote, he defended the brotherhood against that charge back in the mid-1500s. And he condemned people who, and I quote, this is Mena Simons now, say that they believe, and yet, alas, there are no limits or bounds to their accursed hardiness. Foolish pride and pomp, they parade in silks, velvet, costly clothes, gold rings, chains, silver belts, pins and buttons, curiously adorned shirts, shawls, collars, veils, aprons, velvet shoes, slippers, and such like finery. They never regard that the exalted apostles Peter and Paul, having plain and express words of fit forbidden this all to Christian women and get this, and if forbidden to women, how much more to men? who are the leaders and heads of their wives. Well, we see that not only is Menno explicit about plain dress, he bases what he has to say on Scripture. In fact, he practically conflates principle and practice. Uh, In truth, there may be some question about whether Peter and Paul's plain and express words include everything that Menno Simons has brought under condemnation. Nevertheless, this quote from Minna Simons helps make the point that plain clothing among conservative Anabaptists, Mennonites, Beaches, uh, Amish reflects early Anabaptist belief and practice. And their belief and practice was rooted in Scripture, uh, just as we see there from this quote of Minna Simons. There's another document that speaks about uh, the way uh, Mennonites uh, or Anabaptists appeared uh, and that comes from the Strasbourg discipline. It was drawn up in 1568 and then there was subsequent renewals and additions but one item says this tailors and seamstresses shall hold to the plain and simple style and shall make nothing at all for pride's sake. Now this is pretty significant and I think I'll speak, uh, make mention of this a, a little bit later uh, in this, evening's, in this evening's talk, I think it is. But you see uh, that earlier quote I said, said, they were humble. And now here it says, avoid things for pride's sake. And so that thing of humility or, or not being proud in the way we present ourselves was a real strong uh, issue in, um, in, in Anabaptist thought, Mennonite thought, in, in how they presented themselves. I will mention um, that I think it has shifted to something else. And I'll mention that uh, this evening, I think. But be, it, be that as it may, let's leave Europe and come here to North America. And so there was a German Pietist who lived here in Lancaster County around 1750 who wrote concerning Mennonites. And he said this, These people are modest and upright in their conduct, they wear plain clothing, proud colors may not be worn by them. And then in Virginia, uh, the conference there in 1865, that was in the latter part of the Civil War period, uh, spoke to the issue of pride, and then they spoke to it again 12, 12 years later, and we know, of course, that pride clearly falls into the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of this world. Uh, we all have trouble with pride one way or the other, and we know that it's something we, we need to repent of and renounce and, and try to uh, overcome rather than to embrace and to uh, make it a part of our, of our being and bearing. Uh, I mean, doesn't pride stink? Uh, if it stinks to one another, doesn't it stink to God? We know where where pride belongs. But anyway, uh, the Virginia ministers uh, back during uh, those years uh, were concerned. It seemed like that the people were exhibiting pride instead of humility. And so they <coughs> addressed that and they resolved, and I quote, that uh, the wearing of finger rings, breast pins, ornamental shirt fronts, cuffs, fashionable collars, ruffles, Roached or otherwise fashionable hair is inconsistent with the Word of God. Well, now let's go on and think about, uh, let's leave clothing to the side, at least for now, and go on to nonconformity and general lifestyle. Uh, I've indicated that being transformed and not being conformed is not just a, well, at least not being conformed is not just a clothing issue. Uh, as we conform our lives to God, it, it affects all of our life. And so uh, nonconformity really deals with all aspects of our lives and where our lives interface with, with the world. And what uh, you know, how Satan would have us to leave, live or how our pride or our self-will or our vanity or whatever would have us to live versus how God would have us to live. And so that's what we're dealing with. And so it's much, much greater than a matter of clothes. And we see that reflected in a uh, confession of faith known as the concept of Cologne in 1561. Now, it reads like this. We have discussed our apprehensions concerning the growing inclination of the merchant class toward temporal greed and the vanity of ostentatious clothing, which imitate the world rather than displaying the humility of Christ. Know that again that word humility. Because these are insidious and creeping sins and it is to be feared that they will lead many to destruction although one can hardly prescribe for anyone how much business he should do or what he should wear. Yet we desire that each of us would restrict his business activities and dress modestly. Indeed that he might enlighten the world in all that he does and not attire himself like the world after the manner of the discontented and the insatiable. For this reason, we have agreed that all who keep watch over the house of God <clears throat> should censor the members in all faithfulness and in the power of scripture. Now this does speak about clothes, but that's not my focus here. Notice it talked about the merchant class. the merchant class maybe we could say today were the business people. they were the people who who uh, had more capital or had more more uh, wealth uh, well, I don't know if they had more capital or not, but they had, they had more wealth. And it talked about the growing inclinations of that class toward greed and vanity. Uh, the people, they so I wrote us today in a other word, Business Society, 24, any different from 1591 in regard to the danger of greed and vanity, especially when we can uh, nurture that with money. So back to that time when Virginia Conference in eighteen sixty-five and eighteen seventy-seven was concerned about this display of pride uh in their own in their own midst, they also talked about uh, housing as well as personal parents, and so they had this resolution, and I quote again from them, resolved that the superfluous ornamenting of houses or other buildings, either in the manner of building or in decorating the walls and tables with pictures, etc., is inconsistent and contrary to the Word of God. Now, this isn't Amish. I grew up in Virginia myself. And uh, Rockingham County, Virginia, I never had uh, Amish people. These These were were um, Mennonite people, but you notice how, kind of how severe uh, the restrictions were. Now, we may or may not agree where, with where these uh, churches drew the line in some of these applications. And the point uh, I'm trying to make here is not the specific application. Don't get hung up on that. That's not the point. Uh, the point is that Nonconformity in Anabaptist-Mennonite history is not something of recent origin. It's not something that happened in the last 125 years. It's not something that happened since 1950. It is something that happened since 1525. It is, it is rooted in Anabaptist history. Nor is inconsistency anything new, at least in the eyes of some observers. In regard to housing, there was a Swiss immigrant uh, living somewhere here in the state of Pennsylvania in the early 1800s. And her husband was teaching music in a Mennonite community. And apparently they stayed in the homes of the communities where, where, they, where, they were, um, where he was teaching music. And so she wrote back home to Switzerland. and She said that while Mennonites belonged to, and I quote, a class of people who do not believe in luxury, we found in two attractive homes that all the rooms were furnished according to the latest styles with gorgeous beds, armchairs, chests of drawers, desks, tables, and curtains. And then she went on and talked about their bedroom. And she said, the magnificent beds covered with artistically worked spreads, the floors covered with Turkish rugs, all dazzled our eyes, costly drapes covered the windows. We stood there Transfixed! Never would we have expected such things in a Mennonite farmhouse. We will find the same things, my dear husband said, when we accept other invitations. So somewhere here in Pennsylvania, perhaps even Lancaster County, it was a good bit of wealth back in when was that? The 1800s. Let's go on to <coughs> nonconformity in uh, recreation, and entertainment, and. Uh, I just want to make one quote, and this has to do with Franconia Conference. Now, Franconia Conference is now, I think, called Mosaic, but it's east of here. Salerton, Hardysville, uh, that, that area uh, over there. <coughs> and uh, back in the uh, 1980s, 90s, uh, into 2000, maybe it started in the 90s, uh, there was a series of books written called The Mennonite Experience in America, and in that, in that um, series, one of the authors is writing of Franconia Conference warnings and rulings in the 1880s and 1890s. And it has to do with recreation and entertainment. And so, uh, again, it reflects their concern about not being conformed to the world in entertainment and recreation. And it just mentions, the author mentions these following concerns that that show up in Franconia Conference uh, warnings and rulings. Women's surprise parties and ladies' fairs, brethren joining in horse companies, fairs and gambling, traveling to Atlantic City with organized excursion and their hard class of people, going to any such outing on Sunday, drinking at public places or at bees such as for shoveling snow, or raising buildings, stopping at an inn to eat after a corn husking, and letting Mennonite ministers preach in any chapel which had a choir or a Christmas tree. Well, let's go on. I want to talk just a little bit about separation and nonconformity in political involvement. Now, as I understand it, the Anabaptists. Movement didn't just suddenly spring to life as a unified and a cohesive unit to everybody unity that everybody uh, believed and understood all the doctrines uh, The same just from the get-go. It was something that took a little little time in other words Not everybody who was rebaptized thought alike. Well, we still don't do we? but Uh, not everybody was really baptized. And so it took a little time for things to to sort out and for people, for the doctrines to become more uh, unified. And that's what that meeting up at Schleidheim was about, was to uh, bring some unity and say, now these things we agree about. And it it brought them together. And so one of the things that uh, I don't think was totally unified right at the beginning had to do with political involvement, the relationship of the church and the state, as we call it, and what they refer to as the sword, or non-resistance. And so at Schleidheim, they did address that as one of the seven foundational issues, and it addresses the sword. Now, the sword is code for us. It is a, uh, it is, its larger meaning refers to the state and political involvement, uh, those who bear the sword, and, and the Bible uses the sword in that sense. And so there's an article that contains this statement. It does not befit a Christian to be a magistrate. The rule of the government is according to the flesh, that of the Christians according to the spirit. Their houses (coughs) and dwelling remain in this world, that of the Christians is in heaven. Their citizenship is in this world, that of the Christian is in heaven. The weapons of their battle and warfare are carnal, And only against the flesh. But the weapons of Christians are spiritual. Against the fortification of the devil. The worldly. Are armed with steel and iron. But Christians are armed with the armor of God. With truth. Righteousness. Peace. Faith. Salvation. And with the word of God. (coughs) Now here in Lancaster County. (coughs) Mennonites in the 18th and the 19th centuries, in the 17 and 1800s, in other words, uh, demonstrated some inconsistency with this position. Uh, among other things, they were involved with uh, as county commissioners in electoral politics and in serving on jury duty. And perhaps Lancaster Mennonites were particularly vulnerable because they got in on the ground floor of moving into this area and taming the wilderness. And uh, not only that, but then actually becoming a significant portion of the pop- population. Now, in the early years in Europe, Anabaptists were oppressed by the state and they were separated from the state by biblical persuasion and because of, of the opposition. They... Um, existed on the margins of society, out of their conviction and out of necessity. But now here in Pennsylvania, they, they found themselves increasingly free from the shackles of, of being persecuted, non-citizens. And so Mennonites started to feel at home in America. Uh, they started to feel more comfortable. And they're beginning to lose that sharp sense of separation uh, from society and uh, from the state, and they became involved in the political arena. But then from time to time, things happened. Uh, wars came into the scene and and pulled their chains, so to speak. It, it unsettled them. Uh, yeah, perhaps the war of uh, the French and Indian War, but the Revolutionary War, World War I was a very uh, difficult experience uh, for Mennonites, and so, Um, again, Franconia Conference uh, having to do with World War I. They resolved that we have learned that the world expects us to be separate. We therefore consider it advisable to abstain from voting. Well, if we move forward 50 to 75 years from then, as Mennonites increasingly lost separation and nonconformity uh, and assimilated into North American society and culture, they've also increased their political involvement, whether in electoral politics or whether it's uh, protest movements, you know, that that sort of a thing. And for your encouragement, especially here in an election year, I'd like to read a quote from a non-Anabaptist. Uh, he associated with Anabaptist uh, people, more uh, liberal Anabaptists, but... I'd like to um, just read this short quote and I'm actually going to take it just a little further than what he took it. But he said this, mixing our faith with a political party, and I want to expand that, mixing our faith with politics is sort of like mixing ice cream with cow manure. It doesn't hurt the manure, but it sure messes up the ice cream. Well, let's move to Pointing well, areas starting and into Mennonites in conformity. What's that? That emphasis on non-conformity and particularly in dress. Well, part of the reasons might have been uh, because of the effect of industrialization and standardization of, on the clothing industry. People used to make their clothes by, home, by, by hand. I mean, they had to make the cloth at home uh, oftentimes, and, and the clothes, clothing was not as... Um, uh, Nicely tailored, probably, as, as store-bought clothing. Well, because of industrialization, they started, you know, cloth was was cheaper, and they started making, uh, making uh, uh, store-bought clothes. And you all remember reading in Farmer Boy, Laura Ingalls Wilder story on Farmer Boy, how Frank came to the Christmas party, and he had a store-bought cap, and Royal made fun of it, and they, they knocked it off or whatever, you and, know. And You see, this was happening among Mennonites too. Mennonites was wearing store-bought caps or whatever they was wearing, so to speak. And so that was having an effect on people. I mean, you could buy a store-bought suit that just looked sharper than the one that mom made. And so uh, people were starting to uh, be be, uh, uh, going that route. And they had other options besides plain homemade clothing. And so... There, there was a threat to, to the, the whole concept of, or to the practice of, of nonconformity. So consequently, at least in, in close, if not in a, in a bigger way, so consequently the church responded with teaching and actions, and they went beyond where previously uh, the, the focus of the church was on forbidding certain things. They went beyond to where the church required certain things. And so there was a shift in the emphasis of the church. And someone said that between 1865 and 1950, Mennonite district and general conferences passed at least 230 resolutions on nonconformity and dress, more than on any other subject. See, we put the emphasis where you, you grease the wheel that squeaks, and that was the wheel that was squeaking uh, during, during that time. Now, it's not that the church had blinders on and they could only see clothing, personal appearance. They they saw broader, the church saw broader than that. Um, and the last major resistance to the forces that would sweep the Mennonite church in general uh, into acculturation, assimilation into society, uh, the Mennonite General Conference meeting in 1955 adopted... A declaration of commitment in respect to Christian separation and nonconformity to the world." That was the title. And it called the church to a comprehensive and to a consistent practice of discipleship and nonconformity to the world. It stated, and I quote, "Christian separation and nonconformity to the world applies to all of life, including the areas here and, if, here and after specified. And so then the areas that were specified in the document, Uh, were Christian love, attitude toward possessions, courtship and marriage, dress and external experience, the clean life, worldly organizations, recreation, simplicity of worship, and speech. And so that's that's how broad nonconformity is, and probably even broader than that. And the church saw that. But despite that, despite that emphasis in 1955, And and see, that was during the time of the Brunk revivals. When was the Brunk revivals here in in Lancaster? Uh, Fifty-five, maybe fifty-four, in in through there. Uh, And so, in spite of that, and in spite of John C. Wanger uh, writing a major book on the on the subject called "Separated Unto God," which I think is probably still in print today, and maybe some of you have that. It's a bit dated; it's somewhat dated. Uh, in spite of that, church members were increasingly becoming galled uh, by clothing and cultural restrictions. Uh, people, a lot of uh, young men had been in CPS because of World War II, and they got exposed to the larger world, and they were just, they were just wanting to slough this stuff off. And they were wanting to move on uh, more into the mainstream of society. And many of the church leaders, either lacked the will or the mechanism or both, to stop the church from assimilating into the general culture, if not into the world itself, and so some churches and individuals resisted the outward flow uh, of uh, of the tide of nonconformity into the world, and it separated, uh, resulted in many partings of the way among Mennonites. It started in about 1956, where people, churches, or or units uh, started leaving uh, conferences. And so I think it was about 1968-69 that the Eastern Pennsylvania Church left Lancaster Conference and in Virginia, a group left uh, that I was a part of in uh, about 1972 and through there, uh, 71-72. And so along and along, and churches have left conservative conference, and you kind of have a realignment uh, of, of people leaving those conferences. Now... In a Mennonite encyclopedia article on nonconformity written in 1957, written by two prominent churchmen, uh, Harold Bender and John C. Wanger, and they write, 1957, at least that's when it was published, the struggle to maintain true scriptural nonconformity continues to be a major problem for the Mennonite church. The Mennonite church, of which they spoke, has long since tossed it out the window. Uh... In most areas of life. But what about the groups that separated from those acculturating conferences? Uh, What about your own fellowship, your own beachy fellowship, your own congregation here? How can we avoid this world squeezing us into its mold? And I'd like to mention five things here as we uh, close this message about how we can uh, things we can do to, to help um, avoid the world squeezing us into its mold. Now, we enjoy almost 500 years of Anabaptist heritage of nonconformity to the world. And that were, would mean little, it would mean little if it were not first and foremost a biblical teaching, essential to what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, in opposition to the kingdom of Satan. So how can we strengthen and perpetrate this practice? First, I believe that nonconformity should be biblical, biblically based. Nonconformity should be biblically based. Since nonconformity is a biblical issue and not a cultural or social peculiarity, in other words, we're just not strange as, as uh, Pennsylvania Dutch or something like that it's really a biblical issue we're dealing with, not our culture, not our cultural heritage, Uh, then if it's a biblical issue, our practice needs to be biblically based. Should we really have church requirements that have no biblical base? If it's not biblical based, then we're just an oddity. We're odd from the rest of the world. we may not be wrong in being odd, but should we really uh, make it difficult for the Gentiles if there's no biblical base for, for our practices? Now, keeping nonconformity biblical based, biblically based does not mean that every practice has to be the result of a specific Bible verse. Uh, I know that tobacco, you know, was an issue here among Anabaptist people in Lancaster County, but where in the Bible do you have a verse, thou shalt not smoke or chew or dip or, or, or whatever? Uh, it doesn't say it, but are there biblical principles? What are the biblical principles that guide us? And so our applications of nonconformity should be based on those biblical principles. They may not be a specific verse, of, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And applications have to do with what is an appropriate response to God's teaching. So God teaches us in Scripture. We read, we read in Scripture, and we see what, what God is saying. Now, now, what is our response to that? What is an appropriate response? And that's what applications are, appropriate response to the teaching of Scripture, to the principles that we have from Scripture. How would God have us to live out His revealed will? We can discredit the practice of nonconformity both by failing to ground our practices in biblical principles, but also by making the Bible say what it doesn't say. So let's go back to the quote from Anna Simons. Remember that long list of of uh, things that he condemned, articles and accessories. Then he said that the exalted apostles Peter and Paul have in plain and express words forbidden this to all Christian women. Really? Well, Menna's long list may have been justified as an application of what Peter and Paul said, but Peter and Paul did not make that long list. And maybe it was a uh, an application, an appropriate application in his time and in the meanings of, of those of those things. So, the closer the applications link with Scripture, the greater its validity, the greater its strength. When we, we we not only discredit the application, but we undermine the whole practice of nonconformity if we claim biblical support, which does not exist. On the flip side, if we're careful to teach biblical truth and identify principles that bring understanding uh, and hopefully a measure of appreciation, then that strengthens, that strengthens, uh, that strengthens nonconformity. And so uh, we, we should explain, we should teach we should see what the scripture says and out of that flows our applications. Understand that our applications may be culturally conditioned. Uh, and, and we'll get into that uh, probably later on. Secondly, nonconformity. And when I say by culturally conditioned, uh, there is a reason that we'll talk about, is it Monday evening? There is a particular reason why uh, Swiss... Anabaptists women had cap-style coverings. It, it came out of their cultural tradition. Uh, we'll talk more about that then. Second, nonconformity should be positively framed. Nonconformity can easily carry a negative connotation. I mean, after all, the very word is negative. Uh, I don't speak German. Yo hablo español para ustedes que conocen español. I can speak Spanish, but I don't know German. and And so, uh, but I am told there's no German exact equivalent for nonconformity. That is an English, English word. But no doubt the German Bible does teach that we're not to be conformed uh, to, to this world. But be that as it may, that word as we use it, nonconformity, is negative. However, we don't need to be, and, and, and not only that, it implies being different. And it's something that runs against the grain of human nature. I mean, we like to fit in. We, we generally don't like to be different. We don't like to stand out like a sore thumb, culturally and socially. But we don't need to be apologetic about nonconformity's negative aspect because, after all, of the Ten, ten, ten Commandments, six of them are stated negatively. Only four are positive. And Paul, if we go to Second. Um, Corinthians, here's the the passage that we often uh, use, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, for you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell with them, dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. So so God makes us some promises there, and so then it goes on and says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is in connection with the promises of God. God will do these things for us. We have our things to do to separate ourselves from that that contaminates our spirit and our bodies. And so perhaps we ought to frame nonconformity more positively, emphasize more that the point is not just to be different. The point is to be transformed, ridding of things that are alive. Pius the war, liberating character walking down a wood whose life is degrading. Sin is destructive. And if we would emphasize perhaps more the liberating character of, of walking with Christ in nonconformity, it would be more positively framed. Third, nonconformity should be comprehensively applied. Over the years, as we noted, uh, we've spent a lot of time focusing on clothing. And you know what? We can dress ourselves in plain coats and cape dresses, and we can be very conformed to the world, nevertheless. Very conformed to the world in our thinking, in our values, in our lifestyles. And sometimes we uh, think of these things as marks of nonconformity. And the Bible doesn't say we're to have a mark of nonconformity. The Bible says, be not conformed. It's it's a whole life sort of a thing. It's a comprehensively applied uh, sort of thing. In saying that, I'm I'm not trying to knock the plain coat or the cape dress. I'm saying that we can have a certain kind of car or a certain kind of coat or a certain kind of dress, and we can be very conformed to the world. And so... Uh, perhaps, uh, well, nonconformity begins with conversion. And part of conversion is repentance. And part of the meaning of repentance in the New Testament, uh, the focus of repentance is a change of mind. And perhaps too often we're getting saved without an adequate change of the mind about the world and about the kingdom of God. And then when we have a change of mind about the kingdom of God and who God is and the world, then the Bible says we're to renew our minds. We're to be transformed, not conformed, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so our mindset is very important. Fourth, non-conformity should be consistently practiced. Um... You know, we, we can wear, we men can wear a plain coat on Sunday and then pull on some tight jeans with a large ornamental belt, belt buckle on Monday. Is that consistent? Not only can we be consistent, inconsistent within the category of personal appearance, but we can be inconsistent across categories. You know, we can put so much emphasis on one particular uh, focus of nonconformity and be very, very conformed in another way. way. And so what's the solution to these inconsistencies? Well, one solution is to have church members who didn't grow up in our circles and have them to point them out to us. They can sniff them out real quick. But another solution is a conscious awareness and teaching on how some of these biblical principles apply to our whole life. And fifth and last, nonconformity should be intentionally transmitted. I think in family and church life, we sometimes assume that our beliefs and our values will be passed on, and then suddenly we're jolted awake when our children or our church members choose a different course. And why is it that an entire church, it seems like, can can, um, so rapidly jettison separation and nonconformity and assimilate into the surrounding culture? I think it's possible to live off the interest of our spiritual heritage while squandering the capital. Uh, and I think that's what what's happening if if we know that <clears throat> what is expected of us, but we don't know why. And so as church leaders, if we focus on telling people what they're supposed to do, but they don't explain why, we're squandering the capital, so to speak. We're uh, we're spending up the money that's needed to to run the business and they 're just drifting along on on the on the residue on on the past. but separation and nonconformity is not a Mennonite, not an Adam baptist not a Beci, not an Amish doctrine. The two spiritual kingdoms in opposition to one another is a biblical truth and a spiritual reality that Believers everywhere and in every age need to deal with. And so what does it mean for me personally? What does it mean for you personally? What does it mean for you as a church to be a child of God and to walk with the Lord, as it says in Philippians 2.15, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation? Well, we planned, the Lord willing, to pick up. This evening, on the subject of plain coats and cape dresses. Let's kneel together in prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, here we are this morning as Beaches, Mennonites, whatever, hopefully as your children. And we've come to this point in, in life, and we have, um, many of us, are a rich heritage. We all uh, have at our fingertips a rich spiritual heritage, no matter what our our background is. And uh, part of that spiritual heritage is just simply what you've uh, given to us in your Word and to people who have lived before us. In uh, recorded Scripture and lived throughout Scripture. And part of that heritage is is the focus of the early Anabaptists searching for truth and being willing to apply it in their lives. And Father, we pray that we would want the truth and that we would apply it in our lives. And as we live in a crooked and perverse generation that is not getting any better, is getting worse and worse. Help us not to get used to the dark. But to uh, be intentional about how we live. And to think about what we think about. And to think about our attitudes and our values and our morals and our beliefs. To renew our minds through our devotional life, through our congregational life. To know more your will. To be made more into the image of Christ. So help us, Father, and pray your special blessing on this congregation. Help them to live in faithfulness uh, to you and to be um, intentional in terms of what it means to live in their communities and live an everyday life in a way that's pleasing to you. Transformed, but not conformed to this world.